people seem to be more uh, open about sharing how they're feeling and sharing uh, how they're going with mental health issues and things like that. And that's really different to earlier generations of Christians in Australia. So, yeah, I think this marks for me a change in, in how we listen as well. You know, we've got to be really careful that we notice the change, I think, not to change our message or even the delivery of it, but that we understand that the community we're speaking to is changing. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast here at the Third Space Studio in uh, Sorovoval at the Kirawee campus, and I'm very excited to be joined by uh, some co-hosts, and one of them is which is who is Stu? How are you, Stu? <laughs> hello, Joel. Hello, Joel, and hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, everyone. It's, it's great to great to have you online with us, um, Tim. You're uh, you're here with us again. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Joel. Are you excited? Yes, I'm very excited to be here as, as always. As always. <laughs> Um, now, guys, we have been talking about the 2010s and the 2020s and how they've changed us and moved us. Um, and we've been looking at that through the lens of um, a couple of artists that we've kind of taken inspiration from the YouTube channel Polyphonic, where he talks about the number of artists that changed the 2010s. Mm. So far, we've done David Bowie, uh, Taylor Swift, and last week we did Beyonce. And this week, we've chosen to do Kendrick Lamar. But I thought before we get into Kendrick... Um, why don't we just revisit about what we're, what we're doing right now and why it's important and why do we need to be listening to culture? Why do we need to figure out how to embrace or critique culture? Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, what we're trying to do is understand that uh, the world is changing and we've already made a comment over the last couple of seasons that youth culture kind of changes almost every five years. So if that's the case, during the 2010s, co- culture is morphing even during that decade. And so we want to get ahead around the 2010s and we want to ask the question, how has the 2010s affected how we minister now? And if you ask that question and you look back at some of the big movements of the 2010s, our culture has changed a lot uh, with the different different ideas that have been coming into the mainstream. And in fact, our society is changing quicker than ever with social media and more advanced technologies than ever. So we think it's really important for people in ministry to have a conversation Uh, about these things thinking about how do we listen to our young people and see what they think about these things but also how do we listen to each other as christians from different backgrounds and today we're going to look at multiculturalism particularly and ask the question how can we have um, a conversation between people of different backgrounds like how can those of us from uh, the city in Sydney, uh, people like us from the Southern Shire, which is fairly ethnically homogeneous, how do we have conversations with people from Asian backgrounds and Lebanese backgrounds and Indigenous backgrounds? And in fact, uh, particularly, how do we um, listen to Indigenous voices and Aboriginal voices as they uh, share their lived experience with us? And so we're going to start talking a bit about that today in the podcast, but that, that's again just what we're doing each week in this season. We're just looking at different facets of how our society's changed, and to do that in a fun way, we've done it through a particular artist that has a particular passion for a particular uh, theme that is emerging in our society, and it'll be fun next week after we talk about uh, multiculturalism a bit today to to uh, to think about that. But next week it'll be really good because we've got Michael Duckett coming on. And he's one of our Indigenous partners from Western Sydney. And he's just going to tell us about his lived experience as an Aboriginal Christian and talk to us about um, what can we be doing as Christians to continue to progress and make, uh, uh, you know, make, make uh, leaps and advances in, in getting rid of racism in, in our society and how can we work together as 
uh, Christian brothers and sisters in affecting change. So that'll be really good next week. But yeah, Tim, that's what I think we've done. Have you got any other thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think the the posture we're trying to take is um, well, we're taking a theological uh, framework from Hussey, um, Ian Hussey, and so one of the things that he talks about is this idea that um, there are things that we can embrace and things that we can critique as Christians. Um, and so as we look at all these different movements, um, I think we're coming with quite a, a non-anxious kind of way. We're not mm. trying, we're not being hysterical. We're not, um, you know, uh, ranting or raving about any particular thing. Or, but we're just sort of observing and in that non-anxious way, just better to say, oh, this is interesting. This this artist uh, highlights this particular uh, cultural moment in this particular way. Um, and so as we look at that, um, when we have a view of um, common grace, where we see that, you know, God um, provides ways in which uh, even non-Christians can highlight uh, things that are true about his His world and the way, the way that we interact with his world. Um, and because we believe in sin as well, that there are going to be things in cultural moments um, and in particular artists or um artifacts that we will also critique because as we look through the lens of scripture we'll see both those things at work and so i think in that way just being able to hold up these cultural moments and say okay what is going on here um and then as we look through that with the lens of scripture what are some of the things that are noticing um that we can say yeah by god's common grace there are some good things to be able to notice here uh, and let's affirm those because we actually see that they are uh, residences shadows of what the bible affirms uh and then what do we actually notice in those things as well we which um, we would critique because there are going to be aspects of any cultural artefact, any cultural movement, which are, are marked by sin. And so we can, again, through the lens of the gospel and, and the gospel story, we can see that there are things that are going, okay, well, we can notice the, the sin there. We can notice the things that are uh, unhelpful and that where the gospel can shine a corrective light on things mm. as well. So, yeah, I think that's the posture that we've taken and, and I think that's been really helpful so far. Yeah, and I think the good thing about that too is that um, when we have that uh, that position, we're asking the question: What's going on? Like, yeah. what is happening? Like, what are our young people abiding? What are they? What are they watching on TikTok? What are they thinking about? What are they listening to? What's influencing their world? And then we're going to ask the question again today, like we have been: Like, why is that happening? Like, what are the bigger picture things that might be contributing to that? And then, like Tim said, yeah, what does the Bible have to say about that? And um, I think what's really helpful too, uh, if I could add there, is that. Um, it's also if there's a conversation happening in the broader culture we can have that conversation in the church too and we can mm. have that with a theological um, eye to the fact that we're a priesthood of all believers in the church and we sit under the authority of God's word and that um, God's word is incredibly helpful to us to unpack some of the questions that's happening in the broader community to help us to discern how we can grow and become uh, an even better Jesus-shaped community into the future. Mm. And, and as you know, we've all been involved in children's and youth ministry mm. um, and I know that a lot of our listeners and viewers are those who are involved in children's and youth ministry and so we have a heart for those who are at the cultural coalface of these mm. changes who are That's seeing right. this. Um, for some of these uh, changes that are coming through in the 2010s, for example, and the cultural moments there, um, many of our, our children and young people in the church have not known the world any different. This is their only reality, the only media that they see. And so they're working out what does it mean to be a Christian living in that space. Um, and then they're you know, using the shock absorber theory. We've got them... Yeah, many other generations in our church who are also trying to think through what's going on here. We'll have people from um, much older generations who are looking uh, at 
what young people are listening to or watching and go, I can't understand what's going on there. And the shock absorber as a theory uh, um, gives us that ability to help our young people um, process what they're experiencing, to hear from them about what they're, um, how they are thinking through and, and feeling about these type of things, um, and then use the sturdy structure of um, the mature saints in the church to help have that conversation. Mm. So, um, yes, it's not just a... Th- theological or um, philosophical exercise like it's because we deeply care uh, for the young people in our communities and in our churches uh, we want to see those who are already in our churches grow as disciples and we want to see those who are not yet Christians come to know Jesus and see how the gospel speaks into their life mm, that's good I think personally reflecting on what you guys are talking about it, it, we've also I feel like we've been doing that as well so like as I've researched the artists probably artists that probably aren't at the top of our playlist but They've really captured a moment, a cultural moment yes. that we want to look yeah. at. And then bringing the Bible to bear has actually helped me understand it a lot better too. So I think that's what's been really fun about this season so far is that that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. is mm. just take, take what we're seeing happen in the culture, bring the Bible to bear on it, discuss it, and then be able to um, respond in the appropriate manner. I think mm. that's probably what we've been trying that's to do. That's good. Yeah. So uh, let's get on to Kendrick Lamar. Um, we like to choose a cultural artifact for every every episode, and what we decided to do today was to choose his um, very acclaimed album "To Pimp a Butterfly." Um, and I thought I'd take the the intro from Polyphonic, who he, um, uh, the musical journalist who runs Polyphonic. He says this at the start of his video on uh, how Kendrick Lamar shaped the 2010s. He says, in every generation we get a few albums that perfectly capture the pulse of the time. They're musically and lyrically transgressive, but still hold popular appeal. They grow to be something bigger than themselves, symbols of entire movements, hymns for entire generations. There are albums like The Times They Are A-Changing by Bob Dylan, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, and It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. In 2015, Kendrick Lamar released one such album, To Pimp a Butterfly, and then two years later, he did it again with Dam. And Dam, for example, was um, he Kendrick actually won a Pulitzer Prize for, that, for the lyrics on that album, which is really interesting. But to Pimp a Butterfly um, was inspired by Kendrick's return from South Africa. He went to a trip and visited, for example, Nelson Mandela's jail cell, and that reminded me of how we talked last week about Beyonce went on a huge tour before releasing a really mm. um, important and life-changing album. Um, and it's described uh, the To Pimp a Butterfly as a humanistic picture of the modern African-American life. But the main message also in it is that there's a story of the music industry, how it will take beautiful creatures like butterflies and pimp them out, chew them up and break them down. Like this. So he's making a comment on the musical industry, how it treats lots of different artists and also deals with his own struggles of fame. So he liked to recall a lot of African-American literature and artists. He's got George Clinton, uh, Tupac, 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 I always get that wrong. <laughs> Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre were highly, like, very influential in the West Coast hip-hop scene, so he, he brings that onto the album. But also there's a plenty of influence of jazz, which is um, there are a lot of African-American artists who are very popular in the jazz scene as well. So he uses all of those foundational parts of hip-hop, including slam poetry or just poetry, to challenge the current state of hip-hop and, in sh- and, and actually challenge all of the assumptions of what a hip-hop album should be. Um, even... Uh, one of the interesting things is he edits a piece of Tupac talking about the African-American, African-American struggles and then he inserts himself into it as if he's having a conversation with Tupac. But mm. Tupac's been um, dead for quite a long time, yeah. so it's a, quite an interesting way to 
bring out what Tupac was talking even back in the in the mid nineties and trying to bring it into the present, saying, "Hey, this problem still exists. Let's have the conversation about it." Yeah. Um, the album artwork is very interesting too. So it's a, a lot of African American parting in front of the White House, which is an icon of America. But many of the men that uh, they are actually people that Kendrick grew up with when he was actually in Compton in um, California. Um, but they're all holding stacks of cash or a 40-ounce bottle of alcohol. There's even children there. And underneath there's a body of a white judge underneath them. But he actually said this. He said, you look at these individuals, talking about the album artwork, you look at them as bad people or a menace to society. But they're actually good people, just a product of their environment. Only God can judge these individuals right here. No one with a gavel handing out numbers of years and not giving these kids a chance can judge them. I thought that was really interesting. How many different uh, issues he likes to pull out from his experiences as um, as an artist. And in fact, there was an interview I read with him with Rick Rubin, who's the renowned producer, um, and he said that some people, a lot of people, connected with Kendrick's music because. Some people don't enjoy rap music and or hip hop music, but he said that because Kendrick's has such a um, a desire to connect um, to his music and connect to his community about what was going on, that people find the connection in his music, so they identify with his connection and then can able to connect with the music. So there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot there's going, a lot going, going on, on, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there yeah, really yeah, is. Huge. But I think that also. Um, gives a great picture of what mm. how Kendrick is as an artist. Um, and I'd be interested to see what you guys thought of that. And I'd, mm. I know I went on for a while, but it's no, interesting to really hear what, um, mm. what you guys think about how he's, a lot of the issues he's trying to bring to the fore through uh, some of the music that actually wins a Pulitzer pr- Prize, which I think is a quite, a com- quite a complex person. What mm. do you guys think? Yeah, look, um, it's been really interesting digging into Kendrick. Um, again, uh, I... I Rap is not a musical style that I naturally gravitate to um, and it's not one that I, I would, you know, I put on and, and listen to for enjoyment. Um, but I really, what I really do like is I love music that has um, lots of complex themes and cultural um, commentary going on. And so from that point of view, it's quite uh, an interesting exercise for me to listen to Kendrick and to see what he is saying about his lived experience and as he tries to express um, what that was like for him and the people that he is with. Um, uh, and so that's been really fascinating for me. So I've certainly learned a lot uh, from listening to him uh, and hearing from his perspective. Stu, how about you? Yeah, I think I think that album that you talk about with, with all his friends on the front cover in front of the White House with all the cash and the... the the uh, the bottles of alcohol and then the judge on the ground. Um, when I, I've got to admit, when I first saw that, uh, I, I thought of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which <laughs> the, right? the yeah. Beatles had all these imaginary friends on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's, and that was probably their um, major art work of their career. Mm. Probably uh, other people would say Abbey Road was a better musical album, but I think Sergeant Pepper's was their definitive album that so many people kind of look at and go yeah that's the Beatles and I I thought of that as he's got his definitive album and it's in front of the White House and rather than having all these popular people and all these stars as his friends and they've all come together for this uh, imaginary band it's actually a real band of friends and they're actually there with with a judge on the ground and some people might say that's very confronting uh, and you know we could talk about that but the the thing that I find really fascinating is as they're waving around the cash and the alcohol, I'm just thinking of how Kendrick is really critical of alcohol and critical of cash and can see how much damage that's doing to 
to him and his community and so there's this really fascinating multi-level layer just to the album cover and yeah. i really love that because like i remember still back in the day buying vinyl regularly and when i used to buy vinyl i used to enjoy just pouring over the pictures and the cover mm. and the artwork and i feel like he's capturing some of that uh nuance with his uh semiotics we call it like a, a science of symbols the symbolism on there is is almost as powerful as his lyrics and mm. what he says in the album so i found that really Cool, Tim. So resonate with that. Yeah, yeah. there's a, um, that interview with Rick Rubin. He also talks about he, Rick Rubin asking about his recording process, and he says a lot of when I record is just based on a bunch of premeditated thoughts that I have over a simple drum beat. And he's like, I actually need to find an exact sound that triggers the emotional sro- response to be able to rap about a certain topic mm. that's in his head. It's just so fascinating. He's not afraid of the emotion, is he? No, and he, like he's obviously internalised a lot of what's going on, but he wants to express it back out. Um, but then also in his music, he, what was interesting was said that his parents were young. They'd moved from Chicago to LA, but his mother was a dreamer and his father was a realist. So he's always trying to, because of that, the way he was brought up, he's always trying to find the, the good and the evil that play out in a number of ways in his music. So you, he tries to criticise the rap game and how a lot of people take um, certain things in the rap game and, and try to uh, expand on the, the, the amount of wealth or the, the, the success that they have. But he, in, the, in some of the songs, he criticises that at the same time as criticising himself for being part of that as well. So I think... The complex issues that he um, <laughs> is touching on um, really come from even he's always trying to revisit those and those that were shaped him back when he was growing up in Con- growing up in Compton. Compton, that um, it's uh, I find it a fascinating way to actually express his music, and it's probably why again he's such an acclaimed artist because mm-hmm. he's doing exactly what you said. Um, Interesting, just on that, just yeah. before you go on, that, that he even cries on some of his albums. And I was thinking about it this week. I don't think I can think of any other artist that's actually literally crying because he's so emotionally involved in mm-hmm. what he's singing about on the actual recording. Like maybe there is, but I, I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, there's a real uh, rawness to the way that he's trying to process um, his life in these things. It's it very much autobiographical in a number of ways. And sometimes he uses characters mm. to display that. Sometimes um, he uses... Um, conversations between different personas um but there's all of this is him trying to to process um that and it which resonates with a number of things we've talked about in other episodes uh listening to last week's episode where when karen was here talking about one of beyonce's albums where she's um, processing uh the infidelity um of jay-z uh and just the rawness of all of that that comes out in the album um there's similar themes here uh not about infidelity but in that idea of mm. i'm processing my autobiography here and uh yes that expression of emotion that is there i think again is what resonates and again which makes him so highly acclaimed but also resonate um with with so many others who have similar lived experiences i mean it's quite a talent to be able to like live all these different experiences and then process them publicly but also do them in a way that is appealing to a large amount of people that can identify with those issues mm. Actually, i was just wondering i like you're a big fan of music can you think of any other earlier artists that were able to do that I'm just trying to i'm just trying to relate kendrick to some other people doing it earlier earlier on yeah, well, uh, there's a phone call, so maybe... maybe um, Kendrick's that, calling. It may, maybe. There might be some wisdom coming. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, actually, I think uh, I think every now, every now and again we do a podcast and I, it actually it excites me to go deeper into the artists we've talked about. So I've, I have enjoyed looking into artists that I haven't been 
too into in the past but i haven't really listened to kendrick's music until we've decided to have a go at this podcast and he's one of those uh, musicians that i think i'm really interested in in going deeper into his his um his his artwork because i think he seems to be one of those um sem- uh, seminal thinkers of his generation like I, I think of um you know bob dylan and then john lennon and um you know you, you see uh even uh morrissey in the 80s um I don't know, Kurt Cobain in the grunge era, Eminem in the early 2000s. And, you know, you've got these people who who actually move music forward. And, I mean, Eminem was just really expressing uh, stuff, I suppose, when I listened to him for the first time. There was a whole heap of stuff that I found behind that. Like, as as usual, like, it's African-American artists that begin trends and then often there's... uh, uh, white artists pick up on that afterwards. I mean, even um, you know uh, Elvis Presley picking up on Chuck Berry and mm. all the stuff that was going on, Little Richard that was happening that wasn't mainstream. He brought it in the mainstream. Uh, so you've got um, you know Tupac and you've got uh, a whole heap of. I mean, even in the early '90s, the Beastie Boys brought the attention of a lot of hip hop to the world of my world anyway. A lot of people that I mix with, but but when when you see someone like Kendrick Lamar, he's another one of those greats, I think, that's actually saying something different in a different way that's moving music forward. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything these seminal thinkers think, but it it's it's really helpful cultural flag to put in the ground and say, hey, something's changed here. Something new is happening. Just like when Kurt Cobain first burst on, onto the scene with Nirvana and then obviously Pearl Jam and the other bands that followed from the Seattle grunge scene. Um, you know, I remember reading about that in Rolling Stone and how the, the hair metal bands of the 80s heard the first Nirvana album, uh, Nevermind, and went, that's it, the year is over, we're gone. Mm. There's no way we can do this. <laughs> What's happened? It's gone from over-sexualised partying of these really rich people who are flaunting all their their sexuality and their power and their wealth into this self-reflective internalized angry cynicism of nirvana and they're just like oh that's it we're tapping out um in excess when nirvana hit they had this big apparently the boys all sat around and had this big argument what are we going to do now like this is a real we're going to try and copy this or keep going and but really that was kind of the end of in excess as well really Mm. so i think this this sort of era is really interesting because it also, these changes create changes for us in the church, not that it changes our message or changes how we present our message even, but it's changing the people that we're speaking to. And I think that's the important thing about this series. We're trying to understand the people that we're relating to. And for example, Kendrick being so emotional and willing to show his emotions could be quite confronting for many middle-class um, churches that, that you know have kind of, you know, formed up their identity over 30 or 40 years in the homogeneous unit principle and produce church as an event that people go to. It's a little bit um, individualistic. It's a bit consumeristic. You come along to church. You have these polite conversations with each other. It's and very polished spend, and professional often as well. Yeah, it's, there's not a lot of room to sit down and have a cry with someone. I mean, it does happen in church, but I like this is really quite confronting. And it might be that we need to uh, have a pause and think to ourselves how do we relate to a generation that might be more willing to process their stuff in public and i think most youth ministers and even church planners that might be listening and people who are in local churches will know that um people seem to be more uh, open about sharing how they're feeling and sharing uh how they're going with mental health issues and things like that and that's really different to earlier generations of christians in australia so yeah i think this marks for me a change in in how we 
listen as well. You know, we've got to be really careful that we notice the change, I think, not to change our message or even the delivery of it, but that we understand that the community we're speaking to is changing. I mean, um, the producer for David Bowie's album, Black Star, um, his name was Tony Visconti, and we've talked about Black Star as a really um, important album passing on the baton to other generations of music artists. So the producer of that album said that Black Star was influenced by Lamar's work. He said, we were listening to a lot of Kendrick Lamar. We loved the fact that Kendrick was so open-minded and he didn't do a straight-up hip-hop record. He threw everything on there, and that's exactly what we want. We wanted to do. He also stated this um, was why Lamar was talking about rule breakers in music. And then he goes on to say, the album to Pimper Butterfly broke every rule in the book and he had a number one album glued to the top of the charts. you think certain labels would learn from that, but they take somebody who is out there and say, that's what people want. No, people want that for one week. You don't want the same song every single day of your life. I thought that was a really interesting way, that connection obviously between um, Bowie, as we talked about before, and how he was influenced by Kendrick and going, oh, it's, it's over for the, for, the, for, the, for the rock gods. We yeah. need to move on. It's similar yeah. to Kurt Cobain, right? And it's interesting with Bowie because he was able to kind of keep his finger on the cultural zeitgeist as it changed for most of his life. But at the end of his life, in his last decade, he's like, I'm tapping out. Like, I... I can't do this, but I, but I can recognise the change. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. Yeah. So even though I can't really contribute uh, beyond this final eulogy of an album, Black Star, I can still notice that Kendrick Lamar is starting something different that we we can notice. Yeah. Yeah. A, a little bit, a, a little bit more about his background. Uh, he was he did perform under a persona of K Dot before changing it to Kendrick Lamar. Uh, he released his first mixtape when he was sixteen. So that means it was he was recording music when he was 16, which is pretty cool. Um, but then he recorded two more mixtapes, no, f- three more mixtapes with them. Um, and the last one, Overly Dedicated, was released for free online, which is, again, recognising I maybe need to do things differently to how we usually release music, which I thought was interesting. And then his first feature album is Section 80, which was released in 2010. Uh, his follow-up album was in 2012, Good Kid, Mad City. And then there's a real turning point in his career when he was featured on a song by Big Sean and he has a verse in Control where he basically um, implements a shift in the industry in his own career and we can get into that a bit later. Mm. Um, Same year in 2013, he accompanied Kanye West on his first solo tour for five years, which is going to be interesting because we're going to be talking about Kanye West in the next episode. Uh, Then 2015 was his third album, To Pimp a Butterfly, which we talked about. Then he went and appeared on Taylor Swift's album, Bad Blood, or her song, Bad Blood. And then he released um, another album titled Untitled Unmastered, which is <coughs> a number of uh, outtakes from To Pimp a Butterfly. Mm. So he had so much material on To Pimp a Butterfly that he released another album mm. just to back it up. And then his fourth studio album, but his fifth album was Damn, which is the one that won a Pulitzer Prize for. And then in 2018, it's a really interesting to see his trajectory of his career. He cre- produced and created the soundtrack for... Black Panther, which was a Marvel film. Mm. So obviously he continues to influence the culture and be really a big part of the culture. Stu, you were just talking about before though about how even in Australia we are sometimes not great with recognising the shifts in culture. But one of the things that Ian Hussey talks about, for example, is multiculturalism. Mm. Um, Do we want to delve into that a little bit? Because we know how much Ian Hussey has been informing how we try and um, frame up what we're we're talking about. Um, Tim, did you have that on multiculturalism? Or was that was that shoe? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, both of us could share about it. Yeah, but Ian Hussey has a category uh, that he uses again for those of you listening for the first time or just the last couple of episodes. We've been using uh, the thinker and uh, uh, 
sociologist? Yeah, sociologist uh, Ian Hussey. And what he does really helpfully is he says, if you want to look at a society, you need to kind of have some categories that you can look at that society with. And you don't want to stereotype a society as this or that. However, there are some themes that emerge in every society. And one of the themes that is emerging in Australian society at the moment is multiculturalism. And uh, he's written about that saying, uh, like, for example, as he looks at the 2016 census in Australia, uh, he recognises that Australians now come from nearly 200 countries and repre- represent more than 300 ethnic ancestries. One in four in Australia, 26% were born overseas and uh, a percentage point rise over the figure from 2011 census. And that is higher than that of the United States, which I found really interesting. Yeah. I didn't realise that. I always thought of the United States as being more of a multicultural country than Australia. But they're 14%. Canada's 22%, so it's also bigger than America. And New Zealand, interestingly, is 23%. The mm. United Kingdom is about the same as America with 13%. So it's making Australia one of the most multicultural nations in the world. But uh, of all the lots of different countries that have come from overseas we also want to recognize that the indigenous australians the aboriginal community in australia has uh, been through this uh, 2010s actually uh, been i think been there's been more of a focus on all the issues of racism in america Mm. and as a result we've been asking the question of racism in australia as well and we're asking the question about how do we uh, engage uh, as first Australians and and those of us who've come from overseas and different countries. And and I think the interesting issue in the church is, I think because of the homogeneous unit principle, our churches aren't always as multicultural as our country is. So we tend to have churches that are homogeneous unit churches, not just having different ages in different churches, but actually being different ethnicities. So we might find that we have Anglo churches and and Asian churches and and all these different churches around, which is not to say that's a bad thing. But what I think is really interesting is some of these uh, discussions around ethnicity and and racism is is helping me, I suppose, to think about how do we, if we're an all-age, all-stage church, if we're actually sharing the truth and love of Jesus person to person and generation to generation, let's actually have a conversation in Australia about how we share the, the, the gospel culture to culture and recognising, as one of my good Aboriginal pastor friends, Isaac, says often, Isaac says that Aboriginal Australians are amongst the most evangelised peoples on earth and there's a great deal of Aboriginal Christians that actually have a lot to teach us about... Um, following jesus in australia and as we've said on earlier podcasts soul revival has actually adopted some aboriginal um expressions in our in our life together for example out at brewarrina where isaac and eileen lead church out in brewarrina each week they have a feed after church every week so they'll preach the gospel and have a church service and then they'll have a feed and we notice that in city churches we tend to not have time for that so we've kind of adopted that practice and we've really thrived and enjoyed that so yeah so i suppose it's having that conversation about uh you know what christians in different um backgrounds can can bring to the table but um i think i i am concerned that because because australia is changing so quickly maybe some of our churches haven't thought beyond being the same as they were in the 80s and just having a fairly monocultural approach to the gospel um i was talking to a a friend of mine last week who who was saying he had a young lady who was from overseas who who rang uh, him and said that you know she found that 
the culture of the Anglo churches in Australia difficult to connect with. And she's actually thinking about going to an Aboriginal church and talking to them about being part of their church, which I found was interesting. And so some of these, you know, maybe asking questions, why would that happen? Like, why is that being the case? Kendrick Lamar said, um, you know, that he's um, taking on some of the issues in America. Mm. And as we'll talk about later, some of the, the uh, you know, the, the racial tensions in America are boiling over right across the globe. And so the good thing about that is it's ha- getting us to have a conversation about race in Australia. Like, what about the date of Australia Day? Should Australia Day be on Australia Day? You know, do we talk about that in our church? Uh, what about statues? Some people are tearing statues down all over the world. Should we or should we not? You know, what is the church? Are we talking about that in the church? Um, but more importantly, how do we as God's people express that we are brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where we come from? And how do we express that as we go forward? So I think that's why I like the intergenerational approach to ministry because it's about embracing otherness rather than embracing sameness. And I think that's the kind of direction we're headed in these days, yeah. Well, just when you were um, talking about uh, noticing what's actually going on in the culture, I mean, a great example is Kendrick's first album, Section 80, which is a... He, all his albums are like, almost like a concept album. But uh, in Section 80, it's a tale of two women who um, uh, are against the backdrop of race and class relations of the 2010s. And it's actually saying that some people um, thought that racism wasn't a major problem in the US anymore. Um, they thought they had moved on perhaps after the election of uh, Obama as president. Um, but he was saying that on this album, it's like, no, no, that's not the case. Um, he, and he talks about the, the projects, as they call them, the Housing Commission um, areas that people grow up in, poverty, addiction, police brutality towards black youths, um, a generation born under the 1980s Ronald Reagan era policies of the crack epidemic. Um, so it's interesting that you talked about with some churches, we think, oh, it's all fine. But we, that's because we're still maybe perhaps stuck in the 80s like these. Some churches, yeah. yeah. Some some churches are like that. So um, it's interesting. And that's not to condemn them. It's just, you know, the way it is. But it, it almost feels like Kendrick's doing a similar thing as like pulling, like, pulling, hey, hey, guys, you need to pay attention to this rather mm. than. And I think that's why perhaps something that we talk about um, on the Shockers Orban and intergenerationally is that why it's so important to listen to. Um, younger people because Kendrick is is an example of that like he's like no no we still need to address these difficult issues um, anything you want to add to that Tim yeah I just think uh, yeah it is really interesting that he is uh, Kendrick is becoming big and, and getting a lot of success with these albums and the themes in them at the same time that we have um, Obama in the White House and and there's some really interesting commentary uh, around um, President Obama's uh, legacy and what he did, there was a lot of celebration uh, at at the beginning of um, his presidency about the fact that we had an African, not we, the Americans had an African-American in the White House. Mm. Um, Huge huge moment. Enormous moment for that, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, And But then also what happened uh, in his two terms, the eight years, was towards the, the second half there was a lot of disillusionment that, actually things weren't changing. Uh, so uh, whether it was a naive thought that maybe this will fix everything, maybe he's able to um, speak into and, and correct uh, some of the things that were in place in these different um, uh, communities and, and societies. Uh, and, the, and yet we come to the end of his presidency 
uh, and there's a lot of these things still exist. And so we've still got um, Kendrick um, and other voices in there um, who are speaking about you know, the police brutality and, and the justice system. We've got um, poverty and a lot of these things that they're still experiencing. This is still their lived experience. And so the fact that that still exists, um, I think, uh, is, is really telling that this is still a really important moment for them is because it's still really descriptive um, of the, the life that they and their families and the communities that they love so much are experiencing. What you're saying there, Tim, um, reminds me of one of my favourite songs, which is on um, the album that he's written, Damn. Um, it came out in 2017, and it's a, it actually has a number of samples within the, um, the song where it samples a Fox News talking head person. You know, those people, they just love to talk about things. But it's on Fox News saying that hip-hop has done more damage to African-American teenagers than racism in recent years. And he's saying that this is complete, that's completely untrue and it's like you're, you're misrepresenting what we're actually trying to talk about in this issue is that it's it's we're actually talking about these uh, systemic issues that we need to need to change within uh, communities and I'm representing my community in that respect. Um, what would you perhaps be the church's response to issues such as that and, and other issues that would be similar? Yeah, I, I mean the whole idea of are there systemic racist uh, issues in our whole society has become a really big talking mm. point uh, generally in the society and um, uh, yeah I think I think his records are coming out uh, at the whole time of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been uh, sparked um, even more recently after that uh, we had the uh, death of George Floyd the murder of George mm. F- George Floyd in Minneapolis he was murdered by a police officer Derek Chavin and he kneeled on his neck for uh, what was it? It was uh, quite a few quite minutes. A um, seven minutes? Yeah, nine minutes and 29 seconds oh, yeah, apparently yeah. on his yeah. neck. And so that was an act of brutality that was recorded on someone's iPhone. And again, I find that really interesting. Like if it hadn't have been recorded, would that have even been noticed by the world? But yeah. as it was, that um, video uh, actually documented his murder. And that had a huge impact across the US and around the whole world. And it's even got echoes through to today, like our sporting teams still taking the knee at the Olympics this year and continuing to do in the Premier League in England mm. uh, and Australia. Uh, it's still uh, uh, r- rugby league uh, t- teams have done that and rugby union teams. And as I said, the Olympic uh, stars have done that. And his dying words, I can't breathe, being like an epitaph against racism across the mm. world. And as I was saying before, like there's been people who are uh, tearing down statues of uh, people that they've said had are racists or had slaves or, or, uh, or whatever. And there's been a lot of social unrest in America, particularly in the cities. Uh, a really strong example of that is the riots in Kenosha. And even today as we're recording, there's a court case going on at the moment where the jury is actually deliberating uh, in the the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was a young white uh, man who got a gun and drove to Kenosha um, and in in the whole night ended up shooting three people and... They were three white people, actually. And there's this whole court case at the moment going on about was that self-defence or not. So, yeah, so the repercussions of of, uh, of that George Floyd incident is really uh, resonating across the world through the Black Lives mm. Matter issue. And it's, and it's caused a lot of debate in society. So this whole idea is, is racism systemic in our institutions? Is America a systemically racist country that it 
won't actually change. Um, there's a, a theory called um, critical race theory that uh, was developed in the 1980s and um, depend who, depending on who you talk to, people have different opinions about this. But the um, basically there was an election, uh, some elections in some of the states this year and in Virginia, um, the Republican Glenn Young can really uh, attacked the Democrats for this idea of critical race theory and said that critical race theory was being taught in schools. And both left-wing commentators and right-wing commentators actually agree that 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 issue was a big issue in that election and actually could have actually influenced the debate, although it was probably more complicated than that. Mm. But, yeah, Democrats are saying this isn't an issue. Critical race theory is is a... Uh, you know, is a theory that was developed in the 1980s and 90s in in Harvard Law School. It's not being taught in in schools to children in in uh, Virginia. But there were there are a number of parents who are going to uh, school board meetings saying that they need to stop this critical race theory that says that the country is systemically racist, and they're saying it's dividing the country. Um, more left wing parents are saying that this is a, a you know, just a smokescreen and it's going to stop progress. So there's a lot of argument in society about which way we should go to solve this problem of racism. Um, and even, you know, depending what uh, our listeners and viewers think about whether racism is systemic in Australia or not, there's no doubt that we've, we, we know that there is racism in our society. And uh, I, I, in the mid-2000s, I was in... Uh, an, a country town in northwest New South Wales with one of my friends and we walked into a shop and I, I was with my Aboriginal friend and we went up to the shop counter and this is, you know, 2008 and I looked up at the board and there was, you know, just fish and chips and chicken and all these different things and we, my mate and I were just looking at the board picking which, you know, what we're going to have and and my mate actually went first and he said, oh, I'll have, I'll have chicken and chips, please. And to my shock and horror, the lady behind the counter said, oh, actually, you can wait until the white man chooses. He can go first and after he's gone, then I'll serve you. And I just went, well, you'll be waiting a while because we just <laughs> turned around and walked out of the shop. And, and I think for me, it was actually incredibly confronting to see that in 2008. Uh, and it's... You know, it's a lived experience of some of our Aboriginal brothers and sisters and we'll talk to Michael Duckett next week as he comes and shares with us and I'm sure he'll uh, share his views on that which uh, uh, will be far more helpful uh, than, than my thoughts. But to experience that as someone who comes from the Solon Shire, I'd never seen that um, sort of interaction between someone who is an Aboriginal Australian and someone who's uh, not and, and it was really quite confronting. But, when, but it's, what's interesting is... Um, I think the broader society actually think that that Christians are racist. So if we're going to have this conversation about is is our society racist, I think from our point of view it might be good to pause and think, you know, what people think of the church today. Um, there's actually a study done in the UK that not only thinks that Christians are racist, but they actually think the Bible is racist. So this interesting study, uh, and this study came out after the death of George Floyd and the whole activism of Black Lives Matter, and, you know, this is at a time in the UK where statues of Edward Colston were torn down. Other statues like Robin Baden-Powell, who started the Scouts, were, were being threatened to be torn down. Artifacts and insti- uh, the Bible Society wrote a piece on this, actually, and they say that artifacts and institutions come under the spotlight. Is the Bible itself free of the taint of racism? And so this, this survey the Bible Society undertook to uh, gauge public opinion, uh, recent survey of 20,000 people in 
uh, a YouGov, through a YouGov polling agency, they asked what people thought about the life faith of the Bible. And one section actually explicitly deals with racism. And it was interesting that it, the, the study found that there was a, a sharp distinction between the views and the views, sorry, the views of churchgoers and the views of non-churchgoers with regard to this question. So overwhelmingly, uh, people who were churchgoers, uh, 81% thought the Bible was, was in favour of racial equality, not, ra not, not being racist at all, thought it was a positive book for uh, the um, relationship between people of different backgrounds. However, people who were non-churchgoers and non-religious had the opposite view. So 24% thought the Bible is actively against racial equality, while a further 21% think it's mixed in its messaging. So a total of 45% or nearly half of the people in England surveyed about the Bible think the Bible's position on race is questionable. And I think that's worth pausing on as a church and thinking about that because in the midst of this massive debate, and we might have opinions on whether our countries are racist or not racist, uh, and we have probably all experienced racism, and, and I think that, it's an incredibly ugly part of any society. But what's really interesting about this study is that people are arguing in England today that they think the Bible is actually teaching racism. So what do we do with that as a church? It's good to know that, isn't it? Mm. Like, why is that happening? Maybe the church itself is being swept up in, in all these, uh, you know, movements that are arguing against the old mon modernist institutions of the past, and maybe the church is one of those. Um, the the instances where churches could do better with this regard i think it'll be interesting to hear from michael next week if he thinks the sydney anglican church that we're a part of can do better in this but i think i think we need to be cognizant of that because actually nothing could be further from the truth the bible does not encourage racism uh, just a couple of verses that i was thinking about before we 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 came on is that first of all all human beings are made in the image of god and we're all precious as genesis teaches and then as you see uh, the story of the salvation story of the Bible develop, you just see this beautiful inclusiveness that God calls Abraham to be a people and gives them a land and that they will be a blessing to the whole world. And right through that story, there's a story of God's judgment on sin and also his mercy for sinners. And, uh, for example, in Exodus 21, verse 16, there's an interesting verse that doesn't often get read out. Whoever kidnaps a man either to sell him or keep him as a slave is to be put to death. So the people of Israel themselves have been the victims of racism. They've come out of uh, slavery, and so they've got this amazing teaching there. When you jump to the New Testament, the Bible explicitly forbids what slavers did in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 again people are not aware of that so I think it's really important for us to to preach uh, the different aspects of the beauty of the gospel as we find it in the scriptures and um, you know Galatians 2 uh, Galatians 3 28 says there are neither slave nor free in the church we're all one we we are all equal um, so yeah I don't know what you think about it Tim but uh, and Joel but awesome. there's some things that come to my mind I was going to ask you guys a question of like hearing the results of that study as a Christian yourself, how, how does that make you feel? Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really saddened yeah. that that is um, how people understand Christianity and the church 
uh, and well, the scriptures. If, if the question is about the Bible and, and they're seeing the Bible itself as uh, at least questionable, if not worse, in terms of its um, racial message. Yeah, because it's one thing to level that at the church, isn't it? Because we get things wrong a lot. But to actually say that of the Bible itself is another matter, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I think that, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm deeply saddened by that because I don't believe that that is the message that the Bible um, proclaims. I think it is actually vastly the opposite, as you've outlined really helpfully, and there's many other places we could go as well. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the, the fact that uh, Christ reconciles all things to himself. Mm. Um, you've got, I mean, the, the, the racial question that is really pertinent here in the 2010s, which Kendrick is um, highlighting, um, the Black Lives Matter movement is highlighting, uh, is different in form to what was experienced in the ancient world. But for the Jews uh, in first century, the big divide there was between Jew and Gentile. Um, it wasn't about black and white. It wasn't about indigenous versus European. It was um, Jew and Gentile. And yet so much of the New Testament is breaking that down and mm. actually saying that divide no longer exists because of the blood of Christ. Actually, those two can be reconciled with each other. I've got another um, uh, good indigenous friend from the um, the Pilbara uh, that I've spent a number of times with uh, over many years, so Brendan Cook, and he uh, he gifted our YouthWorks uh, team with these two boomerangs, um, and one of the things that he he had carved onto these two boomerangs um, verses from Ezekiel thirty seven, um, and uh, Ezekiel thirty seven talks about um, how the Actually, Ezekiel was commanded by God to take up uh, two sticks, to write one Judah and the other Israel, um, and to bring them together and say, my two divided people will become one. Um, and then there's a whole lot of yeah, historical context there about God's people and the two kingdoms and, and things that if, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that'll be um, familiar to you. Uh, but our friend Brendan Cook was using that same language and that same imagery to actually bring these two boomerangs together and say, you know, this represents Indigenous Australian, this represents you guys as, you know, largely European Australians. Um, and he, he, he brings them together and he handed them to us as a symbol to say, this is the reconciliation that Christ brings because of his blood uh, bought for us, that we are one people. Um, and so it was just really lovely and humbling image for him to be able to gift us with that. I remember my first trip over there, we were sitting in church and uh, we were just um, visitors, you know, members of the, you know, visiting this church and they were serving us. And one of the most humbling things for me was this uh, lovely Indigenous female elder um, handing out communion. And as she came to me and all I could do was hold out my hands and accept and she, as she gives to me the elements of the Lord's Supper, um, which is the great act of reconciliation. It's a symbol of our, our unity in Christ. Um, and so that was really humbling as well. So I think I've gone a long way from your question, Joel, but the, the, <laughs> the idea that um, the, the Bible itself um, preaches a, a racist message, again, I, I, yeah, that's my answer. It's deeply saddening for me because I know that that is not true and yet i don't want to dismiss that that is how people have experienced the church um that that is their experience of um christians um it's interesting this study is being done in england which again has the long history of colonization and the um the missionary movement were you know coincided with that and and we we know that there was a lot of blurring of um the way that uh, colonization happened in the british empire and 
Christianity in there. And so that, I, I don't know, but I imagine that that may be playing into the way some people are responding to that, whether that same um, survey was done in you know, uh, Southeast Asia um, or uh, you know, Asian nations, South Korea, where there's an enormous um, Christian presence there, um, in, in African nations where there's enormous Christian presence. Um, it would be interesting to see the results, to see if the same kind of dynamics came out and therefore what other cultural factors are playing into those responses. That would be mm. – I'm, I'm curious about that. Mm. And I, oh, go on, Joel. You, yeah, you, no, I was just going to say, um, no matter you know, putting that for aside for a second. The other thing that's really important too is, no matter what people think about it, we do need to remember that, as you said earlier, Tim, that we're sinful and that we we actually can sometimes be blind to our own sin. Mm. And uh, you know, Jeremiah twenty two three says, "This is what the Lord says: Do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed." Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, to the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So I think, again, it comes back to this principle of the shock absorber that we've got, which is are, are we listening to our Aboriginal brothers and sisters and listening to their stories? And, mm. you know, there are big issues in Australia that are still unresolved and need to be talked through and solved. You know, there are too many black deaths in custody there are too many uh, Aboriginal people in custody, disproportionately so in Australia. And I think one of the questions I've got for Michael next next week is on the next podcast is what does he see maybe some of the problems that we need to talk about? And also does he have any idea on what he thinks some of the solutions might be too? So I think that's a good example of how we as Christians can be uh, talking about an issue that's coming up in the broader culture and really having a good think about how we as the church are responding to that. Yeah, and then I think that's where I was I was going to go before is just that it's um, with all these issues it's so important to be able to listen to people's experiences of them. Mm. You, you just spoke about that then. For example, Kendrick was saying in uh, a Vanity Fair article in 2018, he said, I would wake up one morning and it would be cartoons and cereal and walking back from school. And at 4pm we'd be having a house party to 11pm and people were shooting each other outside the door. That was my lifestyle. And I think it's interesting how... Uh, we allow artists and, we, and the many artists we've talked about this um, season and even we were talking about Topimba Butterfly was he's representing his experiences mm. and it's how do we take the experiences but not dismiss them and under, try to understand them as much as we can what's going on but then also bring the the, the reconciling um, nature of Jesus mm. and how... Yeah, truth uh, of the, preach the truth yeah, of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and how, we, how we're bringing that to those all those individual situations yeah, i think is where right. we're trying to go how do go, go. i was just going to say i think it's interesting as well in this conversation about um christianity and then and racism um that kendrick himself claims a quite a strong christian faith did you mm. want to talk about that joel you've done some yeah, research yeah let me just find it so he has he has, he says he's a devout christian and was converted in 2013 um after someone one of a close friend died um, back in his local community in Compton. Um, he's credited God for his fame and deliverance from a crime that often played the crime that often plagued Compton in the 1990s. Um, he thinks he's got, he has said that he believes he has a greater purpose. God put something in my heart to get across, and that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, and he also said that he, and in 2014, he dressed up as Jesus for Halloween, but he says, if, if I want to idolise somebody, I'm not going to do a scary monster. I'm not going to do another artist or human being. I'm going to idolise the master, who I feel is the master, and try to walk in his light. 
it's hard. It's something I probably could never do, but I'm going to try. And not just with the outfit, but with everyday life. The outfit is just the imagery, but what's inside me will display longer. I thought that was fascinating. I don't know what your reaction is to that. Yeah, well, and I was just thinking as well that you talked earlier about this um, this duality that he's often playing mm-hmm. with in a lot of his lyrics, and um, he brings a faith lens to that as well as he wrestles with what it means for him to have faith, to believe in God, um, to you know, in his best moments, be seeking to live in that way, and yet there's this also this um, pull in the other direction, and so that that comes in the tension in some of his lyrics as well. It's really fascinating. And to be able to hear those different things, not just him being a Christian, but also the everything's going on. Um, we, we we had a question from Callan uh, last week about how do we create a situation for those conversations to happen. Um, he um, recalled the, the discussion, Stu, that you had with um, Eli, your son, about Squid Game, mm. which was really cool. But it seems that... Um, uh, I believe Callan's coming from a position of a, a church that does operate in the homogeneous unit principle that perhaps those conversations aren't able to happen as easily. Mm. How do we, how does intergenerational ministry help us to be able to create those conversations more often and to be able to bring the Bible to bear on those issues? Well, uh, in direct answer to Callan's question, we talked about trying to create spaces where people can come together. So we've talked about the old-fashioned fellowship tea that some churches used to have back in the old days where they'd have a little... Uh, time where everyone would bring a meal and they'd all share something and I think that's undervalued in our culture because we're rushing around so much we've probably taken um, a bit too many of those practices uh, out of our churches maybe we can we can look to I mean I remember our church used to have a, a, a fellowship picnic as well a church picnic where we had little races for the kids and everyone had a picnic and there was all sorts of fun stuff so I think people are really busy yeah but it's good to carve out some time together but the other thing is interesting is uh, since we talked about uh, Callum's point. Um, I read an article by Paul Tripp recently, and he was talking about some of these bigger issues, like you know, critical race theory and and diversity training in uh, inclusiveness and equity and things like that. And he was talking about how polarized the situation is in the U.S. at the moment. I think Australia's becoming more and more polarized too, because you know there are there are Christians that are really embracing some of these left-wing issues like CRT and other things uh, if well you know some people would say CRT doesn't exist but you know issues that Kendrick Lamar has raised about racism and um, the Black Lives Matter definitely and then other Christians are reacting against that and saying uh, I suppose no more from a right-wing point of view that uh, those ideas are dangerous and we need to counter those and one thing that was really ringing my ears from the Paul Tripp um, argument was he said I've I've heard a lot of stories of Christians leaving church because the church doesn't match their politics but I haven't read any stories at all or experienced a situation where someone has left their political position because it's been challenged by a sermon in church and so there's kind of like uh, it's important to to um, preach the gospel so that we can actually remember actually our highest authority is the word of God not just our political views but Paul Tripps made the point in the article that I was uh, reading where he said that when you think of the old-fashioned catechism got another phone call there the old catechisms we used to do in church we kind of don't do that anymore either so we used to have these fellowship teas and then these catechisms now catechisms were when we would teach our young people the, the the fundamentals of the Christian faith these are the bedrock principles and doctrines of the faith you know um the doctrine of god the doctrine of the holy spirit um you know all these really important uh doctrines 
And he said, what's happened now, though, is church is reduced down to he gives a sermon for 30 minutes a week, and that's the amount of catechism his church gets. And if, if we're lucky, they go to a Bible study. But he said people have uh, TV on all week. They're on mm. social media all week. And the catechisms from the world, from left-wing politics and right-wing politics, from all these different voices are coming in every day. But I do have hope because I, and I've said this before on the podcast, but what I'm really intrigued about is when Jesus calls his first disciples, he he doesn't just create a right-wing or a left-wing discipleship group. He actually has Simon the Zealot, who probably is the the most, uh, you know, the freedom fighter who was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. The Zealots were the freedom fighters, if you like. I suppose the Romans would have even called them terrorists, extremists, but the Zealots would actually kill Roman soldiers and were actually killing people and they carried around knives so they could stick a Roman soldier if they saw them. You know, Simon the Zealot was in that Zealot party. And then on the other hand, you've got Matthew the tax collector who had completely capitulated with the Romans and was actually ripping off his own people, taking taxes off them and giving them to the Romans. And he's got Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector in his same discipleship group of 12 men. That's awkward. Imagine (laughs) sitting around the dinner table as those two guys are sitting around the first time. They're sitting down to dinner. They're looking at each other going, okay, right. Mm. What, what are we going to do with this? Now, I see, I, see, I, I see a little bit of a version of that today in church. Like, you know, is it easy for people who are either progressive in their Christian faith or, or more conservative to sit together at the same table and love each other in the name of Jesus? And so I think as we look at these political questions, we need to really think about how the gospel informs our worldview first. And again, I've shared this before, but Isaac has a really beautiful symbol that I love so much about reconciliation called the black and white handshake, where the two can come together in the name of Jesus. Because after all, Jesus died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And so that it's Jesus who makes us one. So if we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, he reconciles us. And then what's left, Isaac says, is to express that. So I think as Christians, we should we know we don't do it right and we know we get it wrong. And but we also are trying really hard to follow the Lord Jesus and remembering Philippians two, we emulate his humility and we seek to um, let him teach us how to love one another. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. That was really cool, Stu. Thank you. Um, I just thought, um, in, a, in a way of starting to wrap up this episode, uh, I thought I might do another quote from uh, the polyphonic video where he talked right at the end of it about how Kendrick changed the 2010s. And so this is what he says. He captured the spirit of the 2010s by exemplifying high art and popular culture simultaneously, which is perhaps why he was so appealing. He described the time around us, but also moved us inwards. But ser- by searching deep into himself and pouring out what he found onto the page and into the recording booth, Kendrick made us question our own experiences. In the end, Kendrick Lamar exemplified a decade of internal conflict and external strife. He brought his rage at the world and at himself, but mixed them with messages that informed the world's behaviour. He had messages of hope and love, messages that, as bleak as the decade may have seemed at times, it was also one of the great triumphs, full of social movements, brilliant art, people pushing new boundaries. And perhaps most importantly, Kendrick Lamar told us that no matter how heavy the decade has gotten, in the end, things might just be all right. And I think that's a a very specific reference to uh, one of his songs, All Right, became a real anthem for the Black Lives Matter movement. But what I think I get from that, and um, almost as a response to what you were talking about, Stu, is that we don't have to rely, as Christians, we don't have to rely on artists to give us messages of hope and love. 
we can rely on Jesus to be able to do that. And I, I always love, I know I've bring it up many episodes where you talk about Jesus didn't just reconcile us to God, he reconciles us to each other. So when we have those political differences or issues about race relations or whatever they are, if we can come together on the, like around the cross of Jesus, that's where we can really make progress that we talked mm. about progress in helping everyone not mm. just different groups we can come together as all different groups like the disciples did and go jesus is the one that changes us jesus is what changes everything and that's mm. where and then everything else comes out of that mm. um so i thought that was yeah that was a cool way to wrap it up um we do have a question though if you would like to we would like to finish with a question it comes from one of our friends um, michael greaves because he, he attends Soul revival church um, he wrote a question in response to uh, the Taylor Swift episode we did and talking about egalitarianism. And he said, I'm thinking through the egalitarian, egalitarian ideas you guys discussed. Was that part of the ideal of Jesus or was it just an outcome of Jesus inverting the power hierarchy? I'm thinking in reference to Matthew 20 where he says the first will be last and the last will be first. It doesn't sound like there's much egalitarianism there. I'd love to hear what you guys think about that question. Yeah, um, it's it's a great question, and I think my um, my immediate response to the question was to think go back to uh, Hussey's dualities that he's noticing, um, and so in this particular section, he's talking about uh, power and either having a hierarchical type power or an egalitarian type power, uh, and, and my impulse in the duality that he sees there is is to see that yes, we see these two things in cultures and different cultures will express one more than the other um, and my hunch is that that is because uh, both are reflected of kingdom values so again when we um, see the these things acted out by common grace you know god these things are working out and so but they both in different ways reflect aspects of the kingdom um, and so there are um, hierarchical aspects um, to you know the kingdom that jesus is Lord, we are not. Um, that the first should be last, last should be first. There are elements of hierarchy there. Um, when it, even when it comes to the church, we've got passages in the New Testament where uh, Paul encourages Timothy and Titus to appoint elders um, so that there are actually people in charge. There are people who have particular responsibilities. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians that there are teachers, pastors, apostles that are given to the church for the sake of the church. And so there are positions of authority within the church. Um, Peter talks about that as well. Um, that there's, um, you know, there there are shepherds of the congregation who also operate under the the chief shepherd. And so when we see aspects of our society where there are um, hierarchies, we, they're not automatically bad, and they're not automatically good either, because we we all know from lived experience that hierarchies can go bad. Um, but it's reflecting an aspect of the kingdom there. Um, but likewise, there's an egalitarian impulse to um, the kingdom, which we I think we talked about at the, the Taylor Swift episode, um, that we are all one in Christ. Uh, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Um, not that those categories don't actually exist, but in terms of a kingdom view, the way that God views, we are all adopted equally into the family. Um, and so whatever our social status is, whatever um, you know, males or females, whatever our race is, that there is an egalitarianness, um, that there is no who is uh, more Christian or more likely to be Christian or any of those kinds of things. Um, and that's why in Revelation you see that all tribes and tongues are represented there 
um, just all celebrating together at the foot of the cross, uh, sort of foot of the throne uh, in in new creation. Um, and so that would be that, that's the way I kind of think about these things. That when we see hierarchies, when we see egalitarian, they're both reflected in the kingdom um, because I think the kingdom has. Um, I don't want to say balance, um, but I, it, it, there's a there, there's a right mystery there to the fact that they they both exist, and we just need to understand from the scriptures how they explain both those things to us and understand them in right ways. Um, yeah, that, that was my impulse. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think yeah that it's really important for us as human beings to remember that God is God and we are not, and that as we uh, understand the otherness of God, that He is um, holy, and we. We are called to live holy lives and to be set apart. Mm-hmm. Um, also, that as Tim said, there are leadership positions in, in the church and there are different roles in the church. Uh, the The hard thing with the word egalitarianism is people use it in different ways. So just to be clear, the way we were using it on the podcast was in regard to the egalitarian myth in Australia that says that everybody should be equal, the Aussie mateship myth, that, that, that sort of egalitarianism, the idea of everybody, uh, you know, if everyone should have a fair go that some of those kind of real Aussie ways of talking that are, that are quite embedded in Australian society uh, but other people use egalitarianism in a different context uh, with regard to the Bible talking about the roles of men and women so there is a, a debate um, going on uh, amongst people about um, the role of men and women in the church uh, for example there's a uh, a, a complementarian stance and what's called an egalitarian stance uh, with regard to men and women, but that's not what we were talking about in the podcast and it's worth just mentioning not to confuse our, view, our listeners and viewers, but um, yeah, to clarify. But yeah, I think I think too, as Tim said really articulately, there's, um, there's a sense that we're a priesthood of all believers mm. and that we all sit under the authority of God's word mm. and that it's actually a really good question to finish on actually with regard to this um, topic because we mentioned you know um, Simon and Matthew being two disciples in the same party they loved each other because they loved Jesus and I think that you know they were under his authority and you know the definition of politics is it's just what politics is is ways of people organizing themselves so left-wing politics are left-wing ideas of organizing ourselves right-wing politics is right-wing or conservative ideas to organize ourselves and people go to the ballot and vote for Liberal or Labor in Australia or Greens or whatever it might be, and and that plays out in those forums. But within the people of God, I actually think that the Jesus-shaped community is a political reality in and of itself because it is actually a way of organising ourselves. And it's about actually being a family with Christ as um, uh, giving us the opportunity to have God as our Heavenly Father, that... Uh, we are a body and Christ is the head of that body. We are a house being built together with Christ as the cornerstone and we're a wall being built together and we're all bricks in that wall and Christ is the capstone. So I think in a very real sense, Jesus is present with his people as we gather. Now we're coming out of COVID and we're getting excited about coming back together again as churches in Australia and Sydney anyway. Um, we miss being together because when we gather together in the name of Jesus, he is there in the midst of us. And that is a new way of designing human relations. Jesus has created, he's inverted the old power relationships and he's called on us who are leaders in the church to be servants. Um, and there's going to be disagreements amongst us in the church. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, when I was younger, I worked for a liberal member of 
uh, the state parliament in, in New South Wales parliament. And I remember that I was uh, door knocking for that member of parliament and I went to church and one of my elders at church uh, asked me, oh, Stuart, I've heard you've got a new job. And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, did you get a suit? And I said, yeah, I've bought a suit because I was only 19. It was my first suit. And he's like, that's really exciting. Tell me what your job is. And I said, oh, I'm working for a political party. And he went, oh, really? And he got really excited because he was a member of the Labor Party. And he goes, oh, so who's the Labor member that you're working for? And I said, actually, it's a Liberal member. And he he was so sad. He was so devastated. He said, oh, Stuart, I can't believe it. You, you And then it was quite humorous because after he got over his initial shock, we just ended up bantering about it after then. But initially, he was just like, oh, no, Stuart's voting for a for the Liberal Party and I vote for the Labor Party but what was lovely about our relationship is that initial awkwardness turned into a, a lifetime of banter and we actually even shared um, polling booths with each other we'd get, hand out how to vote for the different parties and one time I was at Guymere Public School handing out for the Liberal Party and he was handing out for the Labor Party and it was and he was like I can't believe I haven't been able to win you over yet you know 20 <laughs> years later um, we were still laughing about it so yeah I think I think there's a beauty in that story just to finish because, you know, I think political, uh, who we vote for, political ideas we hold can be very personally held and strongly held by us. But what is even more strongly held is that we're both brothers in Christ and brothers and sisters in Christ and that people who disagree and who are sisters are sisters in Christ. People who disagree who are brothers are brothers in Christ. So I, I think that this new political reality that Jesus brings us is, is unique. And I think that it's spiritual and that's why it's so powerful for us. So while we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, he's also there in the midst of us when we gather together as God's people. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's exciting. And I think we, we need to continue to preach that beautiful message that Jesus's kingdom has come. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent and believe the good news. And that, I think, is a really helpful thing for me to keep coming back to time and time again, just to make sure that I'm laser focused on that in the midst of all these different cultural changes. So, yeah, that's where I, I find it really helpful. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you uh, to Michael for the question, and uh, hopefully it would be helpful. If you want to come back at us, Michael, please please do. And also, if you like Michael want to join the conversation, you can do that in by a number of ways. Uh, you can visit the Shock Absorber website where you can sign up to our mailing list. And um, we can chat on the Discord, which we have, and you can find the link for that in the show notes. Or you can also email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Um, that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, you can check out the Chip Lunch podcast as well, which is another podcast that we talk about um, how different people have lived as Christians during their lives and their experiences. Um, but just to say thank you to Stu and Tim for another very uh, thought-provoking conversation. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thanks, um, John. And uh, thank you to the listeners or watchers. Um, we really appreciate it, and um, we'd like to finish up with a one-way. One-way. One way.